Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Since Georgia flipped blue for President-elect Biden, the gulf between the Old South and the New South has come into focus. Come January 5th, the state's closely watched runoff election will determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. In one race, Republican Senator David Perdue will face Democrat John Ossoff. In the other race, Republican Senator Kelly Leffler, who was appointed to her seat last year by GOP Governor Brian Kemp, faces Democrat Reverend Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Kemp chose Leffler to replace Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson, who had stepped down for health reasons, in part because, theoretically, as a white woman from the Atlanta suburbs, she would have an appeal to white suburban voters turned off by President Trump. Meanwhile, instead of defaulting to a white moderate candidate, as they had in previous years, Democrats rallied around a black candidate, Reverend Warnock, early in the campaign. And here we are in the final weeks of a campaign that has not surprisingly turned ugly and expensive. More than $189 million has been spent in this race alone just on TV. Religion, specifically Warnock's sermons at Ebenezer Baptist, have become a flashpoint. Leffler has run ads that take pieces of Warnock's sermons out of context in an attempt to paint him as a dangerous radical. But will attacks on a black church leader, intended to help motivate white conservatives, end up backfiring with the same suburban voters Leffler was supposed to appeal to? And what does it tell us about the ways in which black and white Americans, specifically Georgians, see the role of religion in the political and social justice sphere? To better understand these dynamics, I called up Reverend Dr. Robert M. Franklin, Jr. Professor in Moral Leadership at Emory University, Candler School of Theology. And Jim Galloway. The political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution newspaper. We started by discussing the role that some Republicans hoped Leffler would play. She was intended as a kind of lure to these white college-educated voters in North Metro Atlanta who fled the party in 2018. The problem with that strategy is that U.S. Representative Doug Collins immediately jumped into the contest as well. It's a, it, it ended up being a 21-candidate uh, field. The Republican side of the race was kind of concentrated uh, between those two. And Leffler was forced to run far, far and hard to the right. I mean, she, she, she had ads out that uh, compared herself favorably to Attila the Hun. Yeah. So that, that appeal to white suburban women just went out the window. Uh, Warnock had considered jumping into the 2014 race for U.S. Mm. Senate and passed on that. What it's done is it's, it's really put a focus on, on the, uh, the new alliance the Democrats are building uh, between uh, suburban Georgia and, and urban Georgia. They are giving up on the centrism approach that we've seen in, in decades uh, past. The thing that really opened everybody's eyes in 2018 was that by following Abrams's formula, they got a larger share of white voters. I, I don't think you're going to see uh, Democrats retreat from this. Does the fact that Leffler had to run so far to the right, had to sort of out-Trump Trump, suggest that Republicans are going to have a hard time post-2020, finding those candidates who can appeal to the suburban Atlanta voters that used to vote for them consistently. It's going to take a while for it to trickle down from the presidential level down to the local level. 
but uh, but Republicans know that suburbia has been lost and it's something to be regained. One thing that one thing that Republicans did right in this past cycle, you had uh, House Speaker David Ralston. He he pretty much freed up his suburban Republican members to pursue legislation that could really help them in November. For instance, uh, one Republican backed a uh, hate crimes bill, which Georgia was one of two states that lacked one. It passed. We had another uh, suburban Republican go after uh, Georgia's just dreadful maternal mortality rate, which is specifically uh, you know, very, very bad for African-American women. So I think you're going to see a shift in tone away from the, from the hard right, but you, 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 do have, you do have this Trump element that's not going to go away and is going to be uh, probably trying to gum up the works on that approach. Dr. Franklin, I, I wonder if you can, uh, we can start by you telling us about the, the role that the Ebenezer Baptist Church plays in the state, both its politics, its influence, and also talk a little bit about its congregation. So the Ebenezer Baptist Church is part of that um, late 19th century, early 20th century flourishing of African-American congregations in Atlanta, especially downtown and southwestern portion of Atlanta, where, by the way, the historic Atlanta University Center is located. So those extraordinary colleges, Morehouse College, Spelman College, Atlanta University, became the kind of um, leadership incubators producing uh, ministers, physicians, lawyers, uh, business people who uh, helped to define Atlanta as a city with a strong and growing black middle class. Those folks wanted churches and they were not comfortable in the traditional uh, smaller storefront folk churches that populate so many uh, urban centers. Uh, they wanted you know, established congregations and even a few cathedrals. And Ebenezer began to emerge as one of those uh, centers of, of hope that balanced personal piety and moral reform with social justice messages, holding the city, the state, the nation accountable, uh, particularly on issues of racial and economic justice. And the early pastors, from Pastor A.D. Williams, these forebears of Martin Luther King Jr., and it's certainly uh, Dr. King's father, as we called him, Daddy King, <laughs> continued to operate in that role as the prophet, prophetic voice of the city, holding institutions accountable, but also a kind of hospitality toward others, including their white Christian counterparts. And so, uh, so Ebenezer emerged as, if you will, more than a traditional black church. It became a public church with a public pulpit. Uh, white uh, visitors were comfortable there. And even today, every national Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, there's a special service. Many of your listeners will be familiar with this. And uh, you get national and international guest speakers coming. That's a public pulpit, uh, not unlike the uh, national uh, cathedral in Washington, D.C., or Riverside Church in New York City. Right. And uh, young Dr. King himself was never senior pastor of Ebenezer, but he was the assistant pastor to his own father during the height of the civil rights movement. 
So when the church looked for someone who could step in and understand those dual roles of forming uh, good people, virtuous people, speaking to the issues of piety and living a good life, a good family, and on the other hand, speaking truth to power, they did uh, select an extraordinary young leader in Raphael Warnock. Within that context, help us understand now the role that the Leffler campaign, that Republican campaigns have put Raphael Warnock in, that he is being portrayed as a radical, as a socialist. His sermons, there are clips of them in these ads suggesting that he is too far out of the mainstream. And um, it, it seems that the it's not very subtle, but it's their job is to scare those white suburban voters away and to make what you pointed out was this this rock of sort of uh, moral authority, the Ebenezer Church, something to be scared of. H- how is that playing? That's not playing very well at all in African-American communities, but even in moderate suburban white communities, many of my students are pastors in those communities. So I do have some pulse read on what they hear and they find it deeply offensive. Uh, The problem is that Raphael Warnock has a long track record in the city of Atlanta as a a moderating voice, as a convening voice, a reconciling voice, as well as a voice of social justice. He has worked with the Jewish community here, and uh, he and Rabbi Peter Berg of the Temple uh, convene annual gatherings. I've participated in many of them. So this guy is really a bridge builder. He's a reconciler. And so to have this rather one-dimensional, harsh uh, mischaracterization of Raphael Warnock's quite balanced ministry is, I think, not serving uh, Senator Leffler well. I'm, I'm disappointed in her. I'd had high hopes One other interesting note here is that uh, this could have been a more interesting race from my perspective as a scholar of religion. Uh, If Doug Collins was uh, running, uh, you know, or in this race, uh, because he too is a pastor and a chaplain. Uh, That doesn't often get highlighted, but uh, just an interesting reappearance of religious figures in these highest levels of elective office. Kind of interesting to me. It's fascinating to me as well. And Jim, you can weigh in on this too, because I know you you have actually written a column about Leffler's appearance at the church on Martin Luther King Day. But also talk to us about the role that those two churches play in Georgia and the different ways in which they interpret their role. Kudos to Dr. Franklin for everything that he said. I would argue that Doug Collins is already in this race. Uh, because the th- you mentioned a column that I'd written a, a couple of weeks ago. The, what prompted me to write that was Doug Collins campaigning on Kelly Loeffler's behalf, with Kelly Loeffler standing right by uh, by his side. And Collins said that uh, you cannot be a pastor and support abortion rights. He called that a lie from the bed of hell. And then he told the crowd, it's time to send it back to Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, uh, very, very rough statements. But in essence, what is happening here in Georgia is uh, Raphael Warnock is being subjected to a religious test. You have a good portion of the Republican Party 
who will say you cannot be a Christian and support abortion, and uh, abortion rights, that is. That's a very, very bright line that's being drawn between the two candidates. And it also seems, though, that so much of this debate, Dr. Franklin, is also this theological, right? That the idea of, of how Reverend Warnock is interpreting or preaching on the gospel versus how that gospel would be preached at a white evangelical church. It's very important you you highlight that because that's a deliberate decision made by uh, certain leaders to, as, as Jim is suggesting, to make abortion the religious test. It's interesting if you go back earlier in time, white evangelicals were on the front lines of abolition in this nation. Uh, many contemporary white evangelicals may not be even aware of their own roots, but early leaders from John Wesley, uh, who uh, really launched the Methodist Church in America here in Georgia, uh, Charles Finney, British preachers who, who had enormous influence on American preachers like Charles Spurgeon, were speaking out against slavery. And their American counterparts like Wesley and others picked up that message and said, slavery is a social sin, a social evil. And they challenged their own parishioners. And that led to some very heated debates. But white evangelicals could have traveled a different path to follow uh, the Wesley tradition in this case, for instance. Uh, instead, many uh, embraced this uh, effort to defend slavery, def essentially placing their economic interests above their faith identity and theology. Uh, of course, the black church was always committed uh, to racial equality and justice. And the kind of prototype of, of uh, the black preacher as politician in Georgia is a name some will recognize, but everyone should know, Henry McNeil Turner, because Bishop Henry McNeil Turner of the African Methodist Episcopal Church served in the Georgia legislature and was also a strong church father, as he's called, planting churches and, and suggesting that politics and the gospel go together, that Jesus spoke, proclaimed a liberation message Yes, he wanted us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but he also wanted every single person to be treated with equal dignity, which meant slavery could not exist. Jim Crow was uh, immoral. And you hear that in Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous 1963 letter, and I hope everyone will go back and read that during these coming days. The, the letter from Birmingham jail says very clearly, King's indictment is, the church is not a tool or a servant of the state. It's not the master of the state. The church is the conscience of the state. And if the church loses its prophetic zeal, its, its love of social equal justice, it will become, in his memorable diagnosis, an irrelevant social club. I think for many, we see that happening uh, in, in, in many white evangelical churches and in some black churches as well. So I'll just conclude by saying that it's kind of unimaginative to highlight in these political ads a few excerpts from Raphael Warnock's sermons when he's written an entire book 
they haven't touched his book, but go back and look at that, uh, I think, 2014 volume. And it's, its title is interesting and revealing, The Divided Mind of the Black Church. Uh, and there he talks about theology, piety, and justice. And so I, I think it's important to try to hold together these traditions of piety, uh, protecting families, women's bodies, unborn babes. That, that's a legitimate point of ethical argument and, and policy. But there are these other issues of inequality, of poverty, of how we treat immigrants and refugees, people who are incarcerated that are right alongside those other pietistic issues. And powerful leaders have selected one agenda rather than holding them together. Jim, you also talked about what, what happens now with the Ebenezer Church in terms of its role in Atlanta politics, or as Dr. Franklin pointed out, the sort of national coverage of of the Martin Luther King Jr. service in, in January. Post-special election, after January 5th, what role do you think the church continues to play? And do you think that Republicans are going to continue to come in and sit in the pews and sit in the services? Or or has that bridge now been burned? The, the one thing to remember is that Ebenezer Baptist is the location. The, the King Day celebration is put together and coordinated uh, by the Martin Luther King Center. Mm. Uh, the fam- which is uh, run by by the family, they issue the invitations, and it's been very important for for the family to maintain uh, good relations with a Republican uh, led state capital. So I've I've got no doubt that 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 they will probably invite Leffler. I, I'm not sure that she would uh, be willing to. Uh, she's going to be willing to subject herself uh, to that if she's if she's reelected. If she, I mean, if she wins this contest, obviously. Uh, but will you see other uh, other Republicans there? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we mentioned Johnny Isaacson, who, who who went there for for. I mean, it was at that ceremony for twenty five straight years. Did not miss. He was a great believer in the need for the GOP to avoid becoming a whites only party. He was he was just dreadfully afraid of that. Uh, and of course, we have seen Donald Trump take Republicans further down that road. But you do have a, a number of younger people in the party, uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, for one, Lieutenant Governor uh, Jeff Duncan, for another, who understand what the future uh, needs to look like for Republicans. And, and, and if they're, they're invited, they're likely to show up. It, I, look, I wouldn't, given the, cer- the, the current uh, circumstances, it wouldn't surprise me if Governor Brian Kemp decided to accept an invitation. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's up for re-election, remember, in 2022. And in a way, these attacks that Donald Trump has uh, made against him since November 3rd might push him in that direction. Yeah, can I weigh in on that just briefly? Of course. Because I think that this could be an interesting example of the black church setting up its its own religious test, as it were. That if uh, Senator Leffler wins the race and does wish to return. I think that uh, she will not be well received unless she first acknowledges the harm that she uh, has participated in, uh, in, in, in characterizing and mischaracterizing the theology of the black church, of the black pulpit, and specifically of Reverend Warnock. 
I think that uh, she has really taken on and attacked a culture and an institution and a history she herself does not fully understand. I'm sure her, uh, you know, her advisors and consultants don't understand. So it will be important for her to show some remorse, some acknowledgement of harm done. Uh, and then I think you know, black uh, churches have been exceedingly uh, generous and forgiving, as we saw in uh, you know Emmanuel AME mm -hmm. and and other places. So it's possible to return. It's possible to reconcile. After all, this is Dr. King's uh, home church and pulpit. Of course, uh, the possibility of forsaking a negative racial past and rhetoric uh, is possible. George Wallace showed up there, you know, years ago. So yes, it, it can happen. But I think there will be far more Black community interest and celebration of leaders like Secretary of State Raffensperger and the other uh, leaders who stood up for truth, data, evidence, and, and ultimately justice in the uh, post-November uh, election period. Well, Dr. Franklin, Jim Galloway, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you all taking the time to do this. Real pleasure. Well, thanks, thanks for having us. Jim Galloway is a political columnist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And Reverend Dr. Robert M. Franklin Jr. is a professor of moral leadership at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. And for a link to Dr. King's 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail, head over to politicswithamywalter.org. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.